Section 32 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Fourth Book, The World as Will. Second Aspect, The Assertion and Denial of the Will to Live, When Self-Consciousness Has Been Attained. Section 55, Part 2. The distinction we have established between the ways in which the brutes and man are respectively moved by motives exerts a very wide influence upon the nature of both, and has most to do with the complete and obvious differences of their existence. While an idea of perception is in every case the motive which determines the brute, the man strives to exclude this kind of motivation altogether and to determine himself entirely by abstract ideas. Thus he uses his prerogative of reason to the greatest possible advantage. Independent of the present, he neither chooses nor avoids the passing pleasure or pain, but reflects on the consequences of both. In most cases, setting aside quite insignificant actions, we are determined by abstract thought motives, not present impressions. Therefore, all particular privation for the moment is for us comparatively light, but all renunciation is terribly hard, for the former only concerns the fleeting present, but the latter concerns the future, and includes in itself innumerable privations, of which it is the equivalent. The causes of our pain, as of our pleasure, lie for the most part not in the real present, but merely in abstract thoughts. It is these which are often unbearable to us, inflict torments in comparison with which all the sufferings of the animal world are very small, for even our own physical pain is not felt at all when they are present. Indeed, in the case of keen mental suffering, we even inflict physical suffering on ourselves merely to distract our attention from the former to the latter. This is why, in great mental anguish, men tear their hair, beat their breasts, lacerate their faces, or roll on the floor, for all these are in reality only violent means of diverting the mind from an unbearable thought. Just because mental pain, being much greater, makes us insensible to physical pain, suicide is very easy to the person who is in despair, or who is consumed by morbid depression, even though formerly, in comfortable circumstances, he recoiled at the thought of it. In the same way, care and passion, thus the play of thought, wear out the body oftener and more than physical hardships and in accordance with this, Epictetus rightly says, Per turbant homines non res ipsae, sed ribus de creta. And Seneca, plurasunt quanos terant, quam quae premunt, et saepius opinione, quam re laboramus. Eulenspiegel also admirably bantered human nature, for going uphill he laughed, and going downhill he wept. Indeed, children who have hurt themselves often cry not at the pain, but at the thought of the pain which is awakened when someone condoles with them. 
such great differences in conduct and in life arise from the diversity between the methods of knowledge of the brutes and man further the appearance of the distinct and decided individual character the principal distinction between man and the brute which has scarcely more than the character of the species is conditioned by the choice between several motives which is only possible through abstract conceptions for only after a choice has been made are the resolutions which vary in different individuals an indication of the individual character which is different in each while the action of the brute depends only upon the presence or absence of the impression supposing this impression to be in general a motive for its species and finally in the case of man only the resolve and not the mere wish is a valid indication of his character both for himself and for others but the resolve becomes for himself as for others a certain fact only through the deed the wish is merely the necessary consequence of the present impression whether of the outward stimulus or the inward passing mood and is therefore as immediately necessary and devoid of consideration as the action of the brutes therefore like the action of the brutes it merely expresses the character of the species not that of the individual that is it indicates merely what man in general not what the individual who experiences the wish is capable of doing the deed alone because as human action it always requires a certain deliberation and because as a rule a man has command of his reason is considerate that is decides in accordance with considered and abstract motives is the expression of the intelligible maxims of his conduct the result of his inmost willing and is related as a letter to the word that stands for his empirical character itself merely the temporal expression of his intelligible character in a healthy mind therefore only deeds oppress the conscience not wishes and thoughts for it is only our deeds that hold up to us the mirror of our will the deed referred to above that is entirely unconsidered and is really committed in blind passion is to a certain extent an intermediate thing between the mere wish and the resolve therefore by true repentance which however shows itself as action also it can be obliterated as a falsely drawn line from that picture of our will which our course of life is i may insert the remark here as a very good comparison that the relation between wish and deed has a purely accidental but accurate analogy with that between the accumulation and discharge of electricity as a result of the whole of this discussion of the freedom of the will and what relates to it we find that although the will may in itself and apart from the phenomenon be called free and even omnipotent yet in its particular phenomena enlightened by knowledge as in men and brutes it is determined by motives to which the special character regularly and necessarily responds and always in the same way we see that because of the possession on his part of abstract or rational knowledge man as distinguished from the brutes has a choice which only makes him the scene of the conflict of his motives without withdrawing him from their control this choice is therefore certainly the condition of the possibility of the complete expression of the individual character 
but is by no means to be regarded as freedom of the particular volition that is independence of the law of causality the necessity of which extends to man as to every other phenomenon thus the difference between human volition and that of the brutes which is introduced by reason or knowledge through concepts extends to the point we have indicated and no farther but what is quite a different thing there may arise a phenomenon of the human will which is quite impossible in the brute creation if man altogether lays aside the knowledge of particular things as such which is subordinate to the principle of sufficient reason and by means of his knowledge of the ideas sees through the principium individuationis then an actual appearance of the real freedom of the will as a thing in itself is possible by which the phenomenon comes into a sort of contradiction with itself as is indicated by the word self-renunciation and finally the in itself of its nature suppresses itself but this the one real and direct expression of the freedom of the will in itself in the phenomenon cannot be distinctly explained here but will form the subject of the concluding part of our work now that we have shown clearly in these pages the unalterable nature of the empirical character which is just the unfolding of the intelligible character that lies outside time together with the necessity with which actions follow upon its contact with motives we hasten to anticipate an argument which may very easily be drawn from this in the interest of bad dispositions our character is to be regarded as the temporal unfolding of an extra-temporal and therefore indivisible and unalterable act of will or an intelligible character this necessarily determines all that is essential in our conduct in life that is its ethical content which must express itself in accordance with it in its phenomenal appearance the empirical character while only what is unessential in this the outward form of our course of life depends upon the forms in which the motives present themselves it might therefore be inferred that it is a waste of trouble to endeavor to improve one's character and that it is wiser to submit to the inevitable and gratify every inclination at once even if it is bad but this is precisely the same thing as the theory of an inevitable fate which is called argos logos and in more recent times turkish faith its true refutation as it is supposed to have been given by chrysippus is explained by cicero in his book de fato chapter twelve thirteen though everything may be regarded as irrevocably predetermined by fate yet it is so only through the medium of the chain of causes therefore in no case can it be determined that an effect shall appear without its cause thus it is not simply the event that is predetermined but the event as the consequence of preceding causes so that fate does not decide the consequence alone but also the means as the consequence of which it is destined to appear accordingly if some means is not present it is certain that the consequence also will not be present each is always present in accordance with the determination of fate but this is never known to us till afterwards as events always take place according to fate that is according to the infinite concatenation of causes 
so our actions always take place according to our intelligible character but just as we do not know the former beforehand so no a priori insight is given us into the latter but we only come to know ourselves as we come to know other persons a posteriori through experience if the intelligible character involved that we could only form a good resolution after a long conflict with a bad disposition this conflict would have to come first and be waited for reflection on the unalterable nature of the character on the unity of the source from which all our actions flow must not mislead us into claiming the decision of the character in favor of one side or the other it is in the resolve that follows that we shall see what manner of men we are and mirror ourselves in our actions this is the explanation of the satisfaction or the anguish of soul with which we look back on the course of our past life both are experienced not because these past deeds have still in existence they are past they have been and now are no more but their great importance for us lies in their significance lies in the fact that these deeds are the expression of the character the mirror of the will in which we look and recognize our inmost self the kernel of our will because we experience this not before but only after it behoves us to strive and fight in time in order that the picture we produce by our deeds may be such that the contemplation of it may calm us as much as possible instead of harassing us the significance of this consolation or anguish of soul will as we have said be inquired into farther on but to this place there belongs the inquiry which follows and which stands by itself besides the intelligible and the empirical character we must mention a third which is different from them both the acquired character which one only receives in life through contact with the world and which is referred to when one is praised as a man of character or censured as being without character certainly one might suppose that since the empirical character as the phenomenon of the intelligible is unalterable and like every natural phenomenon is consistent with itself man would always have to appear like himself and consistent and would therefore have no need to acquire a character artificially by experience and reflection but the case is otherwise and although a man is always the same yet he does not always understand himself but often mistakes himself till he has in some degree acquired real self-knowledge the empirical character as a mere natural tendency is in itself irrational nay more its expressions are disturbed by reason all the more so the more intellect and power of thought the man has for these always keep before him what becomes man in general as the character of the species and what is possible for him both in will and in deed this makes it the more difficult for him to see how much his individuality enables him to will and to accomplish he finds in himself the germs of all the various human pursuits and powers but the difference of degree in which they exist in his individuality is not clear to him in the absence of experience and if he now applies himself to the pursuits which alone correspond to his character he yet feels especially at particular moments and in particular moods the inclination to directly opposite pursuits which cannot be combined with them 
but must be entirely suppressed if he desires to follow the former undisturbed for as our physical path upon earth is always merely a line not an extended surface so in life if we desire to grasp and possess one thing we must renounce and leave innumerable others on the right hand and on the left if we cannot make up our minds to this but like children at the fair snatch at everything that attracts us in passing we are making the perverse endeavor to change the line of our path into an extended surface we run in a zigzag skip about like a will-o'-the-wisp and attain to nothing or to use another comparison as according to hobbes philosophy of law every one has an original right to everything but an exclusive right to nothing yet can obtain an exclusive right to particular things by renouncing his right to all the rest while others on their part do likewise with regard to what he has chosen so is it in life in which some definite pursuit whether it be pleasure honor wealth science art or virtue can only be followed with seriousness and success when all claims that are foreign to it are given up when everything else is renounced accordingly the mere will and the mere ability are not sufficient but a man must also know what he wills and know what he can do only then will he show character and only then can he accomplish something right until he attains to that notwithstanding the natural consistency of the empirical character he is without character and although on the whole he must remain true to himself and fulfil his course led by his demon yet his path will not be a straight line but wavering and uneven he will hesitate deviate turn back lay up for himself repentance and pain and all this is because in great and small he sees before him all that is possible and attainable for man in general but does not know what part of all this is alone suitable for him can be accomplished by him and is alone enjoyable by him he will therefore envy many men on account of a position and circumstances which are yet only suitable to their characters and not to his and in which he would feel unhappy if indeed he found them endurable at all for as a fish is only at home in water a bird in the air a mole in the earth so every man is only at home in the atmosphere suitable to him for example not all men can breathe the air of court life from deficiency of proper insight into all this many a man will make all kinds of abortive attempts will do violence to his character in particulars and yet on the whole will have to yield to it again and what he thus painfully attains will give him no pleasure what he thus learns will remain dead even in an ethical regard a deed that is too noble for his character that has not sprung from pure direct impulse but from a concept a dogma will lose all merit even in his own eyes through subsequent egoistical repentance vele non discitor we only become conscious of the inflexibility of another person's character through experience until then we childishly believe that it is possible by means of rational ideas by prayers and entreaties by example and noble-mindedness ever to persuade any one to leave his own way to change his course of conduct to depart from his mode of thinking or even to extend his capacities 
so is it also with ourselves we must first learn from experience what we desire and what we can do till then we know it not we are without character and must often be driven back to our own way by hard blows from without but if we have finally learnt it then we have attained to what in the world is called character the acquired character this is accordingly nothing but the most perfect knowledge possible of our own individuality it is the abstract and consequently distinct knowledge of the unalterable qualities of our own empirical character and of the measure and direction of our mental and physical powers and thus of the whole strength and weakness of our own individuality this places us in a position to carry out deliberately and methodically the role which belongs to our own person and to fill up the gaps which caprices or weaknesses produce in it under the guidance of fixed conceptions this role is in itself unchangeably determined once for all but hitherto we have allowed it to follow its natural course without any rule we have now brought to distinct conscious maxims which are always present to us the form of conduct which is necessarily determined by our own individual nature and now we conduct it in accordance with them as deliberately as if we had learned it without ever falling into error through the passing influence of the mood or the impression of the present without being checked by the bitterness or sweetness of some particular thing we meet with on our path without delay without hesitation without inconsistency we shall now no longer as novices wait attempt and grope about in order to see what we really desire and are able to do but we know this once for all and in every choice we have only to apply general principles to particular cases and arrive at once at a decision we know our will in general and do not allow ourselves to be led by the passing mood or by solicitations from without to resolve in particular cases what is contrary to it as a whole we know in the same way the nature and the measure of our strength and our weakness and thereby are spared much suffering for we experience no real pleasure except in the use and feeling of our own powers and the greatest pain is the conscious deficiency of our powers where we need them if now we have discovered where our strength and our weakness lie we will endeavor to cultivate employ and in every way make use of those talents which are naturally prominent in us we will always turn to those occupations in which they are valuable and to the purpose and entirely avoid even with self-renunciation those pursuits for which we have naturally little aptitude we will beware of attempting that in which we have no chance of succeeding only he who has attained to this will constantly and with full consciousness be completely himself and will never fail himself at the critical moment because he will always have known what he could expect from himself he will often enjoy the satisfaction of feeling his strength and seldom experience the pain of being reminded of his weakness the latter is mortification which causes perhaps the greatest of mental sufferings therefore it is far more endurable to have our misfortune brought clearly before us than our incapacity and further if we are thus fully acquainted with our strength and our weakness we will not attempt to make a show of powers which we do not possess we will not play with base coin for all such dissimulation misses the mark in the end for since the whole man is only the phenomenon of his will 
nothing can be more perverse than to try by means of reflection to become something else than one is for this is a direct contradiction of the will with itself the imitation of the qualities and idiosyncrasies of others is much more shameful than to dress in other people's clothes for it is the judgment of our own worthlessness pronounced by ourselves knowledge of our own mind and its capacities of every kind and their unalterable limits is in this respect the surest way to the attainment of the greatest possible contentment with ourselves for it holds good of inward as of outward circumstances that there is for us no consolation so effective as the complete certainty of unalterable necessity no evil that befalls us pains us so much as the thought of the circumstances by which it might have been warded off therefore nothing comforts us so effectually as the consideration of what has happened from the standpoint of necessity from which all accidents appear as tools in the hand of an overruling fate and we therefore recognize the evil that has come to us is inevitably produced by the conflict of inner and outer circumstances in other words fatalism we really only complain and storm so long as we hope either to affect others or to excite ourselves to unheard-of efforts but children and grown-up people know very well to yield contentedly as soon as they clearly see that it absolutely cannot be otherwise animo in pectoribus nostro domito necessitate we are like the entrapped elephants that rage and struggle for many days till they see that it is useless and then suddenly offer their necks quietly to the oak tamed for ever we are like king david who as long as his son still lived unceasingly importuned jehovah with prayers and behaved himself as if in despair but as soon as the son was dead thought no longer about it hence it arises that innumerable permanent ills such as lameness poverty low estate ugliness a disagreeable dwelling-place are borne with indifference by innumerable persons and are no longer felt like healed wounds just because these persons know that inward or outward necessity renders it impossible that any change can take place in these things while those who are more fortunate cannot understand how such misfortunes can be borne now as with outward necessity so also with inward nothing reconciles so thoroughly as a distinct knowledge of it if we have once for all distinctly recognized not only our good qualities and our strength but also our defects and weakness established our aim accordingly and rest satisfied concerning what cannot be attained we thus escape in the surest way as far as our individuality permits the bitterest of all sorrows discontentment with ourselves which is the inevitable result of ignorance of our own individuality of false conceit and the audacity that proceeds from it to the bitter chapter of the self-knowledge here recommended the lines of ovid admit of excellent application optimus ille anime vindex ladentia pectus vincula qui rupit de doluit questamel so much with regard to the acquired character which indeed is not of so much importance for ethics proper as for life in the world but its investigation was related as that of a third species to the investigation of the intelligible and the empirical character 
in regard to which we were obliged to enter upon a somewhat detailed inquiry in order to bring out clearly how in all its phenomena the will is subject to necessity while yet in itself it may be called free and even omnipotent end of section thirty two the world as will and idea volume one fourth book the world as will second aspect section fifty five part two Recording by Pamela Krantz.